Let's ask God to help us with his word. Uh, Heavenly Father, as we have heard, uh, your word does deal sometimes with hard things, who we should marry, uh, staying married and not divorcing. And we know that these are things which uh, touch many of us uh, deeply. And so we pray, gracious Father, that you would give us humble hearts to hear your word, that we would understand it more, that you would give us grace to trust it and put it into practice. And help me to speak your word now truthfully and clearly uh, to Jesus' honour and the strengthening of his people. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Are you sure you should be going out with him or... Uh, from what I can gather, he or she is clear they're not a Christian. Now, many of us will have had a conversation that has started like that and we probably felt a bit awkward about it, intruding into such a private matter. And many of us, probably all of us, will know someone who has been involved in a divorce or whose parents have divorced. Two vexed issues who we can consider marrying and divorce amongst believers. And Malachi addresses them both, speaking to the community of God's people, giving the word of God for the people of God then and now. Two vexed issues and one command, one take-home message, but by the end of the talk, each of us has to understand and have written on our hearts Guard yourself in your spirit and do not be faithless. Two vexed issues, one command and one overarching expectation that God's people be faithful to their God and in being faithful to him become like their faithful God in being faithful in their relationships with each other. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Malachi's starting point is the relationship with God that all the members of God's people enjoy. To be a member of God's people was to acknowledge a common origin in God saving Israel, just as to be a member of God's people today is to acknowledge that we're only included in the people of God because of God saving us through his son. God had said to Pharaoh at the time of the Exodus, Israel is my firstborn son. He had given them birth by rescuing them from Egypt and they could rely on his care and should acknowledge his authority. And Israel was God's creation, his creation through his mighty work of redeeming them not just from slavery in Egypt but also, as the language of Isaiah tells us, from their captivity in Babylon. It's this common origin in the saving work of the one God which every Israelite shared in that's actually the key to their identity and behaviour as God's people and the source of, our, source of their unity. And it's our common origin in being saved by the death of Jesus that gives us our identity and our behaviour as God's people. And Malachi points them to this common origin, this common relationship to the one God, the given unity they have because he's going to go on and speak of the faithlessness that is destroying that unity. 
Have we not all one Father? Have we, has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord which he loves and has married the daughter of a foreign God. They should be one. But they are faithless to one another, acting treacherously towards one another. And in doing so, they're profaning the covenant they'd received from their fathers and in which they all shared. The covenant God had made with them at Sinai. They were treating this relationship, this formal relationship that God had entered into them, this life-giving relationship, as if it was just some common thing, a thing of no consequence that could be set aside at will and so defiling what was holy for it was a covenant with the holy God. They were treating God's word, that is the covenant and its requirements which had been given to them by God himself through Moses as if it were just a human word, one they could set aside at will. How were they doing it? How were they faithless? How were they profaning the covenant? Well, Malachi makes that clear at the end of verse 11. Some were marrying or causing their sons to marry the daughter of a foreign god. But before he gets to that, Malachi wants to emphasise to them and to us the seriousness of what they were doing. Listen to his language. Judah's been faithless, recalling the picture in the prophets of God's people who were portrayed as an adulterous wife. Abomination has been committed. Abomination is a word that's associated with the idolatry of the Canaanites and their vile practices like child sacrifice. It's a behaviour that's detestable in God's sight. And to heighten their offence, this abomination is being committed in Israel, the land of promise given, them to, given to them by the Lord. And it's been committed in Jerusalem, the place where God has set his name. They are practising this behaviour under God's nose, in his face, as it were. And so they were defiling the Lord's holiness, symbolised by his presence amongst them in the temple, the sanctuary. The holiness that he loves, that is, that is dear to him, that he will maintain and protect. Malachi's here is including us, should get the message, shouldn't we? This is behaviour that is serious and seriously offensive to God, behaviour he won't ignore. So what is this behaviour? Again, the members of the people of God, Judah, have married the daughter of a foreign god. They're marrying the wrong people. Well, after that kind of build-up, many of us probably think that's a little anticlimactic, isn't it? I mean, isn't who we marry a basically private matter? Oh, and can't the person marrying this foreigner still practice their own religion, whatever the religion of their wife or their partner? How can Malachi talk of it as being faithless, treacherous to the other members of the people of God? I mean, isn't it just between them and God an abomination? No, surely, surely these foreign wives or some of them were really nice people. Well, let's think about this phrase, the daughter of a foreign god, a little more and see why it's such a serious sin, why Malachi's language is fully justified. You see, the issue is not ethnicity or race. Ruth and Rahab weren't true blue Jews, but they were welcomed and praised as people who had faith in the Lord. 
the daughter of a foreign god. That phrase is speaking of women who worship other gods, people who find their identity and character in their relationship to a god who is not the Lord, but one of the surrounding, one of the gods of the surrounding uh, people, people who, in a sense, have given their heart, their loyalty to someone who is not the Lord. The issue is one of faith, not race. These Jewish men, and the passage does speak in terms of men because they had the initiative in matters of marriage and divorce, but of course it's equally applicable to men and women. These Jewish men were marrying women who worshipped other gods. Now why is that so serious? Well it's serious firstly because it's breaking the clear command of God in the covenant, the covenant which God entered into with them when he saved them. Hear God speak to the people through Moses before they enter the promised land. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. He commanded them not to intermarry because the Lord knew that that would introduce the service, the worship of other gods, into the life of the people of God. And so they would cease then to be his holy people, the people he had saved them to be, given to him exclusively, chosen to be his treasured possession. They would cease to be the people of his choice. And yet in that choice was all their peace and hope and prosperity. Breaking this clear command of God in the covenant was actually a bit like the Jews tearing up their birth certificate, repudiating their identity as one of the people of God who are to be that holy people set apart to worship the holy God by doing his will. And it will bring upon them, verse 4, God's wrath. God's wrath on his people. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. And this intermarrying with worshippers of other gods is serious and they should have recognised it as serious because of their history. Their history had shown the reality of God's determination that they would be his holy people who give their hearts to him alone. Their history has shown the truth of God's statement that bringing in the worship of other gods into their lives would provoke his wrath. I mean, they'd experienced the danger of intermarrying even before they'd entered the promised land. At Baal Peor, where, following Balaam's advice, the Midianites had seduced a number of the Israelites through intermarrying. You can read about it in Numbers 25. But especially, they had seen the effects of marrying the worship of other gods in the life of their second greatest king, Solomon. He was a man who was richly blessed by God with wisdom and wealth. But he loved many foreign women. And at the end of verse 3, his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, <coughs> as was the heart of David his father, and that introduced into the history of Israel that disastrous separation between the northern tribes and the southern tribes. It was the beginning of the end. 
The people of God should have learned how destructive introducing idolatry into Israel had been. That idolatry introduced into Israel's life at the highest level through marrying the worship of other gods against God's command had led to the destruction of Israel, the northern people, and of Jerusalem. Yet despite the clear command of God, despite the lesson of their history, this was a practice, a persistent sin amongst the returned exiles. Ezra 9. In Ezra 9, some bring a report to Ezra that the people, including the priests and Levites, are intermarrying with the people of the land who are idolaters. In fact, the officials and chief men were taking the lead in this. Ezra tears his robes and is appalled and then he prays and in his prayer he says this. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this, shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations, would you not be angry with us until you consumed us? This was no private sin. Now Ezra and his people took steps to address that sin, but it persisted. It was still an issue when Nehemiah returned to Jerusalem from the Persian court. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon and Moab and half their children spoke the language of Ashdod and they could not speak the language of Judah. And so Nehemiah takes action and he reminds them, verse 26, of Solomon and the effects of Solomon's intermarrying. Didn't he sin on account of such women? There was nobody like him. But foreign women made even him to sin. This intermarrying had serious consequences for all the people of God. It was a threat to the continued existence of Israel, both from loss of their distinctiveness. I mean, who could read the law and participate in worship if they did not know the language of Israel? Oh, and it was a threat to their continued existence from the judgment of God and idolatry. This was not a private sin. It had public consequences. It was something that affected the very existence of the whole people. And it wasn't a small sin. It was treachery against God. It was behaviour that was selfish and destructive, setting aside God's command, threatening the continued existence of the people of God, separating them from their God and threatening to bring them under God's judgement again. So it fully merited Malachi's description. But, but why might the people be persisting in, in marrying people who, who worshipped other gods? Oh, why might those in Christian congregations go against the command of Jesus through his apostle? A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Scripture's clear, God's clear. Believers in Jesus should only be marrying those who share the same faith, who worship the living God through faith in his Son. 
They shouldn't be marrying those who will turn their hearts to worship other gods, whether it's the gods of our age like money or pleasure or respectability, or whether it's Allah, or whether it's philosophy, and all worship something. Don't think that non-believer you uh, relating to perhaps is some clean slate. All worship something. If they're not worshipping the Lord, they're worshipping someone or something else. God wants his people, Old Testament, New Testament, to be wholly his. Believers in Jesus should only be marrying those in the same faith. So why? Why were the people of Malachi's day persevering in this intermarrying? Why do people who say they love Jesus marry people who are not believers? Well, in our day, believers developing relationships with non-believers often speak in terms of love and loneliness. In Malachi's day, it was more about advantageous alliances. They were seeking security, economic and political security, through marriage alliances with the wealthy of the land. Now, ending loneliness and finding security are real needs, real human needs. But what the people of Malachi's day were saying in these marriages is that we will find our security our way, not by relying on the Lord. And what believers who seek relationship with those who are not yet believers are doing is saying, we won't rely on God, but we rely on ourselves to address our own need, to address our own loneliness. We will do it our way, not his way. At the heart, this disobedience expresses what we've seen to be true already of the people of Malachi's day. Remember how Malachi started? God said, I have loved you. And they said, oh, how have you loved us? At the heart, this disobedience expresses doubt of God's love. Oh, and yes, what we've also seen in Malachi no fear of his judgments. No expectation or confidence that God would keep his word. You can hear what they're saying in their choices. God doesn't love me. God doesn't care for me. So I need to be the source of my own security, of my own happiness. Doing what seems right to me, and I can because... God won't keep his word. His warnings are empty and can be disregarded. <laughs> They're overconfident, really, aren't they? That, oh, they can keep that side of their life. They can worship the true God on their terms, not his. You can hear, oh, I'll be right. My faith won't suffer. There is an idolatry of self before there is an idolatry of these gods, the wives won't introduce. An idolatry of self that says, I know better, I should please myself, which is indifferent to the effect of their behaviour on their fellow Israelites and indifferent to the claims of their saving God. And that is actually true today. Of those who hear the apostles' command and then go and unite themselves to those who do not worship Jesus as Lord. 
it is actually no small thing. It actually goes to the heart of our relationship with our God. And it's no private matter. It affects the congregation as a whole. Because somebody who does that against God's word is actually saying to all the other believers that at the point of your deepest longings, where it really matters, you don't need to trust Jesus and live his way. In fact, trusting Jesus and living his way will just make you miserable. He can't be trusted to look after you. And isn't that a destructive message to circulate amongst followers of Jesus? Well, Malachi has shown how abhorrent and unfitting their behaviour is, and now he shows them the consequences. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord remove him from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings an offering to the Lord Almighty. Now there is a little difference, and we'll see it again in the translations of these verses of Malachi, but the sense is actually clear. Malachi is calling on the Lord to remove this person forever from the people of God. He will have no descendants among them, no place, no memory amongst the people of God. Having repudiated the covenant, they have no place in the covenant, no place to continue to threaten the well-being of the whole people of God. And yes, says Malachi, Lord, please enact this judgment even though they bring an offering. And he knows that the Lord will do it because you can't make it up to God for disobeying him by any offering you may bring any sacrifice you may make. In fact, to disobey God, to hear what God says and says, no, no, I'm not going to do that, I'm going to do what I think is better. And then to bring an offering, to profess faith in God, to worship him, that's just more contempt. Because it's actually saying, I won't worship you in the way you say. Oh, no, no, you might be the Lord, the creator of heaven and earth, but I won't let you tell me how to respond to you. Oh, no, no, God, you should be pleased with me worshipping you in whatever way I think right, doing for you whatever I, what pleases me. Now, isn't that contempt for the living God? In fact, God's already said it's contempt. Remember, Samuel speaking to Saul, to obey is better than sacrifice, to listen than the fat of rams, for rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. It's clear, isn't it? God commands his people to only marry those who share their faith in God, who will encourage and support them in the service of the true God in being the people God wants them to be and has saved them to be. See how serious it is to disobey God in this. It's actually idolatry. And in the end, it will exclude you from the people of God. But you might be sitting there thinking, well, that's all well and good, but I am married to an unbeliever, and I know that's to be the case with some in our congregation. And that happens, doesn't it? We become believers in Jesus after we've married, and then the Lord graciously saves us. Or the person we married said they were believers, but over the years they've actually drifted away, and it's become apparent that they never really were committed to following Jesus. Well... If that's your circumstances, you know better than I, actually, all the difficulties of having divided loyalties 
in the household. But God's word is clear to you in that circumstance, isn't it? If any, if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she contends to live with him, he should not divorce her. That is, God's word is clear. You should stay in that marriage. And God promises grace and strength to help you persevere in the life he has called you to. To persevere trusting him without being afraid. To persevere in loving your not yet Christian spouse and praying for their salvation according to God's will. But perhaps you are someone who has married someone who does not worship Jesus and you did it willfully. (laughs) You were told somebody had that awkward conversation with you and you ignored them, confident in your own judgment. But now to your grief, you've learned how difficult it is to continue to worship Jesus. And God in his mercy has convicted that you must worship Jesus and that you sinned in not listening to him. Well, I want to say to you, that is not an unforgivable sin. You can find mercy and in God's mercy perhaps become a means of mercy to your yet unbelieving husband or wife. But you have to confess it for the sin it was, to see its seriousness. You have to confess the idolatry in your heart that when you disobey God in this, you are doubting his love, although he gave his son for you. Isn't that offensive? That when you decided to go against his word, you were saying that the word of the living God is not true and sure. Isn't that offensive? It was an idolatry that's actually made it more difficult for your spouse to believe. Not only did you not love God, you did not love your neighbour. For you've taught your spouse that God can't be trusted with your deepest needs and that his word can be safely ignored. It was faithless. So seek pardon for that. Get right with God in your heart. Confess your idolatry, that you loved yourself and your own will and your own needs more than him. He'll receive you. He received the returning prodigal. Oh, he promises to enter into the heart of anyone who will open up to him as Lord. But there is another even more distressing form of faithlessness being practised amongst the people of Malachi's day, taking place amongst people who would appear to be earnest, sincere worshippers of God. And this, the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favour from your hands. And you say, why does he not? The sin of these people, their, their faithlessness, says Malachi, has put a barrier between them and God so that God no longer accepts their worship or shows them favour. The sin of these people, their faithlessness, says Malachi, has cut themselves off from God's grace. And they sense that. They, know, they sense that they can no longer draw near to God. And they're asking, why notice that? They, they don't have a clue. They're not conscious of any sin. In their eyes, they've got a clean conscience. 
This second form of faithlessness is apparently something so accepted it hasn't registered with them. Well, maybe it's something they thought that they had left behind them, moved on from, and so it's dropped out of their consciousness. What is this faithlessness? Well, we see that when we get down to verse 16. It's being faithless to the wife of your youth, divorcing her, sending her away, not providing to her what she should have been rightly able to expect from her husband. Food, shelter, affection. Yes, again I say this passage is addressed to men, for in Malachi's day it was the men who could initiate divorce. But of course what God says here is equally true of women who in our day show that same faithlessness. <laughs> well, their commitment, the promises they made to the wife of their youth, the husband of their youth, they may have slipped from their mind, but not from the Lord's. He was witness. See that? The Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth. He heard those solemn promises. And he expects his people to keep their word. He expects you to keep your word. Remember Psalm 15? Who can live with God? Verse 4, the one who swears to his own hurt and does not change. The Lord expects his people to keep their word even when it's difficult, even when it might cause loss, even when it might make you unhappy. He expects his people to keep their word because, praise God, he always keeps his word. And the Lord emphasises how bad this faithlessness is. By the way, he describes the abandoned wife. She's the wife of your youth, the first wife who shared life with you from the earliest, the growing, the maturing, the early triumphs and achievements, the failures and the hurts. She's your companion. That's a word that was used of friends and business partners. An equal. Oh, yes, and the word was associated with ideas of permanent bonding. It could be used to describe a seam or joint in a building. This was a relationship that was meant to be permanent. And the permanence is emphasised by the solemn way in which the marriage commitment is described. She is your wife by covenant, by sacred, formal commitment, like God's commitment to Israel. And so it should have shared the values of that commitment, that covenant, steadfast love and faithfulness. <laughs> and that equality and permanency was God's design to fulfil God's purpose. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? Now that part of verse 15, commentators say the Hebrew of it is amongst the most difficult in the Old Testament. That's why there are a couple of varieties of translation. And I need to draw your attention to that, not to confuse you, not even to say that you need to learn Hebrew. Though, of course, there's a reason why you should pay your ministers to learn Hebrew and encourage them in that, because they all find it difficult, right? No, I draw it to your attention to actually tell you that we're well served by our English versions, and despite the details, the point is actually clear. Malachi in that phrase is taking us back to Genesis, as our Lord does in Matthew 19. 
He's looking to the union of the first man and woman. And he says it's by God's design that they became one flesh and that in becoming one flesh they transmit life, the spirit of life that allows for children to be born who are like them in the image of God. And why has God made them one in that marriage union with that gift of fruitfulness? He was seeking godly offspring. You see, in the design of marriage, it's not just a question of life being transmitted, but in God's design, he wants relationship transmitted. In covenant marriages amongst his people, God is looking for children who will continue in the covenant, who will walk in God's ways. Now, we know divorce has all sorts of detrimental effects on children. Try as hard as we might to lessen them. But this willful divorce, this setting aside of a wife or husband because they no longer wanted the other person to be their wife or husband, frustrates particularly the nurturing of godliness. For what does this willful do? <laughs> willful divorce do? It teaches and models that you don't need to be faithful to covenants. You don't need to keep your word that at the heart you're actually to live by your wishes and desires, not by God's word. And isn't that destructive to the transmission of godliness? Oh, you see, this isn't talking about all divorces. Hopefully that's clear. Verse 16 makes that clear. It talks about the man who hates and divorces his wife, and we'll come to that. Uh, this is talking about a divorce where one party's faithless, just sends the other out of the marriage because they hate them. So Malachi's not talking here about the person who has divorced their spouse because of sexual immorality or where they've been abandoned by them or, or because the person was seeking protection from and an end to abuse. No, Malachi, God, is not talking directly here to, to those who've been divorced by another. But God is talking directly to the initiator of what I guess we might call no-fault divorce. Talking directly to the person who's just decided that they've had enough of this relationship and for all sorts of reasons. You, you hear them, oh, it's too difficult. Fallen out of love. Can't reason with her. Sends this person out of their life and home. The person who hates their spouse. Now, hate is a strong word. And you talk to people in divorce... And often the initiator will say, oh, I didn't hate them. I just didn't love them anymore or I just didn't love them enough. But hate here is not a description of what the person was feeling when they made a decision to divorce. No, no. Hate is God evaluating their action. It's his evaluation of the reality of what they've done where... They've deprived someone to whom they had pledged lifelong faithfulness of the affection they had a right to, of their home and family, and plunged them into poverty and difficulty. And isn't that hate? God's talking to the initiators and he's actually saying, make sure it isn't you. 
So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. He's saying, be alert to protect and preserve what is right, alert in the core of your being, your spirit, where you form your desires, make your dreams, decide on what you will do, direct direct your life in your spirit where you and you alone are responsible for what you settle on, what you choose. You can't blame somebody else. It's your spirit. Make sure in your spirit you are not entertaining thoughts, plans, dreams that will make you unfaithful to your husband or wife. Because God's verdict on this unfaithfulness is very clear. The man who hates and divorces, or the woman who hates and divorces, says the Lord God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Your action in driving away your wife or husband, however you speak of it to yourself, oh, you know how they speak of it. We both needed opportunity to grow. Oh, you know, I had these wonderful advantages and I'd grown, but she or he just hadn't grown with me. Oh, we need to be freed from this loveless marriage where we quarrel all the time. It's so unsatisfying. They talk about freedom and love. Now, your action in driving away your husband or wife is hatred. For what else would you call it? It is a very opposite of love. Taking away from him or her all you had promised them in love. And do you know what it is like, says God, to do that? It's like covering your garment with violence. God is saying, what do I see when I look at you? What covers you when you've done this to your husband or wife? I see violence. And violence is a word uh, used to describe brutal, deplorable acts that violate God's order. It's the word used of the generation of the flood when God says to Noah, I've determined to make an end of all flesh for the earth is filled with violence through them. And it's an apt word. For the initiator of these divorces is ripping apart what's one, tearing asunder what God has joined together. And when we hear this, we have the answer to the why question of verse 14, doesn't it? We know why for all their religion and their tears, God shows them no favour. How can he? Because he looks at them and he sees that high-handed selfishness that is determined to destroy his order and rule on the earth in defiance of him. And notice, it says that God says this twice. The man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel. Covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Because God is emphasising the reality of his judgement. Because actually this kind of... Divorce is so often a socially acceptable action. One we can talk ourselves into thinking is right. Maybe one we can all sympathise with because who wants to stay in a loveless marriage? God's standard is surprising. So he wants us to know it really is his standard. You see, God is saying to a believer... I would rather have you faithful than happy. Hear that? I'd rather have you faithful than happy. 
oh, perhaps he's saying it because he knows that in the end, being faithful to him, dying to ourselves to do his will, is actually the way to life and joy. I mean, that was true for his son, wasn't it? The way of suffering, doing God's will, that was the way for Jesus to be raised to everlasting life and joy. Let's think now about your marriage. Are you thinking of leaving it? Oh, no sexual immorality, no desertion, no destructive abuse that you've you know, tried to remedy by seeking help and intervention. Are you, are you thinking of leaving it you just don't love, grown out of love? Well, if you're thinking about that, just remember the issue you're actually thinking about is who is Lord? Who's Lord of my life? Will I trust my Lord who loved me and gave himself for me and calls me to be faithful? Or will I be led by my own desires and needs, convince myself that it can't be any way other way? Will I be wise in my own eyes or fear the Lord and die to myself and turn from evil? That's the issue. But many of you I know are sitting there, or some of you, and your lives have already been affected by divorce. And that's where actually these new translations, the new English versions, are actually more helpful. So this passage isn't saying God hates the divorced, or even that he hates divorce. It's saying that he is angry with faithlessness. And as I've already said, here he is talking to initiators of certain kinds of divorces. He's not talking to those who are being divorced by another. <laughs> you probably don't need any reminder of how cruel divorce is. Nor is he condemning those who have divorced because they've had to acknowledge that the other has already broken their one flesh union by sexual immorality or desertion or abuse, the kinds of abuses, the deprivation of affection and provision mentioned in Exodus 21. Sadly, there is a lot more to be said about divorce, but here he is clear. He is talking to the initiators who have just grown tired, found somebody better, want to move on. And he says, see your action for what it is. It's covering yourself with violence. It's not love, it's hatred, it's not freedom but enslaving people to poverty. See your action the way God sees it. That's right. If that's you, either you've done it or you're entertaining it in your heart, see it now how God sees it, a faithlessness to your spouse that was faithless towards God. And again, repent. Stop justifying it. It is not unforgivable, but you have to see how far you are from being right with God, where you followed your own desires, trusted your own wisdom, 
and disobeyed him. Judgment fell on the violence of the flood generation and it will fall on you unless you repent. Well, two issues of faithlessness. One command. Got it here again. Guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. And a call to all of us in an age that thinks that what people should believe makes no difference to your relationships, in an age that think that commitments can be abandoned when it gets in the way of happiness or you really being yourself, this is a call to all of us to be faithful, a reminder that God expects his people to be like himself, to be faithful as he is faithful, to show steadfast love as he has shown steadfast love to us despite our failures, to be forgiving as he is forgiving. So what are you doing to guard your spirit? Yes, hopefully you're turning away from the seduction of others. Read Proverbs 5. But you need to do more. You actually need to cultivate the root of faithfulness in your life. And that means two things. You have to grow in yourself, if you're a believer, a conviction of God's love for you in the gospel. That no matter what path he calls you to tread, he loves you. He has given his son for you. He will keep you. And in his love, he will give you all he has promised you. How can you do that? You actually need to keep reminding yourself of the gospel. Yes, you need to be sensitive to your sin and keep confessing it so that you actually know the wonder of God's love. Yes, you need to pray for yourself what Paul prays that you'll be strengthened by God's spirit in your inner being so that you will know the height and depth and length and breadth of the love of Christ, that love that surpasses knowledge. See, so, so often we're happy to go through life with just such a shallow sense of Jesus' love for us. We say the words, but our minds are preoccupied elsewhere. What have you done to deepen in yourself your sense that you are loved by Jesus, to know the wonder, the awe of that. You need to grow in conviction of God's love for you in the gospel and you need to grow in conviction of the truthfulness of God's word, that this is the word of the living God. He means everything he says. He means every warning he gives. He will fulfil every judgement he pronounces and yes, wonderfully, he will keep his promise so that even if you die to be faithful to him, he will raise you up. How can you grow in that? By living by it every day. Saying, not my will, but your will, every day, as you know his word. Cultivate in yourself a conviction of God's love for you in the gospel and a conviction of the truthfulness of God's word so that you can live in your most intimate relationships where it really matters to you as the people of the faithful, loving, merciful God. This is God's word to you. Guard yourself in your spirit and do not be faithless. Let's pray. Our gracious God, uh, we do pray in your mercy. We pray 
that we would just heed this word. Turn us away from idolatry of ourself, our own dreams and ambitions, putting them before trusting and obeying your son Jesus. Help us to love him and to grow in his knowledge of his love for us so that we are faithful. Help us to hear his word and tremble at it as the word of the living God, a word that gives life and death so that we embrace the promise and heed the warning and live faithfully. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.